The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, listeners. Welcome to this week's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. My name is Ian Fisher, and I'm back this week, my second in a row, filling in for Beth Heaton. We're recording this episode on a very cold and very snowy January 12th in Portland, Oregon. We got eight inches of snow just two days ago, which was our fifth largest 24-hour snowfall of all time. Things are crazy here as a result, but I work from home, and the show must go on. So here we are. If you want a little taste of Portland weirdness, do a web search for the Unipiper, our local unicycling bagpiper who can't be stopped even by record snowfall. Today, we're going through a number of your emails. We love getting questions from listeners as they help us to develop ideas for future segments, and they remind us that the reason we do this show every week uh, is to help families navigate this process with as much fluidity as possible. To send us questions that might be answered on a future show, email gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. But before we get to our listener questions today, I'd like to get back into the pre-professional mindset that we occupied last week in our discussion of MBA and pre-med programs. I think a lot of students start their college search by thinking not necessarily about where they'd like to go, but what they'd like to be when they graduate. This usually introduces a whole different set of questions when looking at colleges and an alternative set of relevant factors in the search process. Last week, we talked a little about why it might not be the best case that your professional goals would change what you might study or where you would choose to go to school, at least not on a macro scale. Today, we want to explore the same set of questions for a different professional objective, veterinary medicine. To help me in this conversation, I'm delighted to welcome my colleague, Kara Courtois, former admissions officer at Barnard College, back to the show. Good afternoon, Kara. Hi, Ian. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really glad to have you back. And uh, pre-vet, I think, is one of those areas where we tend to see students have a lot of passion for this particular uh, (laughs) pursuit, that it's something that they've wanted to do since they were very young. Um, And when they come to us, maybe to start thinking about their college applications, pre-vet is a a topic that's that's really at the forefront of their mind. How do you sort of start talking with students who maybe as sophomores or juniors or, you know, summer before their senior year come to you and say, I'm really interested in being a vet where does that take you as a as an advisor for high school students? Yeah, I mean it's it's definitely it's it's similar to pre medicine for sure, but um, I'd say it's just a complete mix of focusing first that their curricular um, their curriculum is covering all the usual places we'd like to see following through you know with the four years of 
the core subjects, English, math, history, science, foreign language. And then maybe in the, the science area specifically, are there any options in their school curriculum for um, additional science classes and or specific uh, courses that you know, they might be lucky to have at their school that might align with some of their interests? So if there's a, an environmental science, an animal behavior science, anatomy, you know, things like that, um, genetics, courses like that that might be offered, I would definitely point them in that direction. And then balance with that would be what, what are they doing um, outside of the classroom, either in the summers or during the school year, that are helping them to figure out if indeed down the road they should be going into, you know, veterinary science, or just to be able to foster that general interest that they have in, in animals. So definitely, yeah. that's a really fun part of the process for sure is figuring out what are they doing to foster that interest. When you sort of advise students take those science classes that are off the beaten path, they're sort of outside the triad of biology and chemistry and physics, is that because it enhances their chances of getting into a veterinary program, or is it because you're just encouraging them to explore certain types of science that might be relevant for a vet later on down the road? That's a great question. And I guess I definitely want to hammer home that I was um, saying they should definitely take the core biology, chemistry, physics classes first and foremost, absolutely. And then if they have the offerings um, in their school or even outside of school, that it is partly experiential because, you know, it's always a shame when a student says, well, I've really, you know, wanted to be, you know, a vet since I was in kindergarten and first rode a horse. And it's like, okay, that's fantastic. And I love listening to those (laughs) stories and sort of walking through that with students. But like what you were saying initially is you definitely don't want to limit your college choices um, based on that point alone because very likely students will figure out what they want to do once they're in college, more likely, and you don't want to have to transfer. So I like to see those extra science classes as a way to to really flush out what, you know, might really add weight to that um, theory of, you know, that was based on experience and then um, really help them dive into something and maybe get some lab experience and also maybe get to work with a teacher who is equally passionate about that field and might be a great recommendation for them down the road or might be able to provide opportunities to expose them to other areas that might even further enhance that interest, be it summer lab experience or volunteer work just because they're interested equally. Right. That that idea of mentorship, I think, is really important in this case, uh, especially just, just because this concept of wanting to be a vet usually comes from very early on. We have a close relationship with an animal um, or we just we love animals. And that's something that I think starts this process of like, well, if you love animals, then you should be a vet. Um, <laughs> and I mean, that's the train of thought, right, that a lot of people sort of go on. But the daily process of being a vet um, – is not quite as glamorous and requires certainly a, a great deal of scientific curiosity and and um, care about the process of, of doing medical work, even if it's not with humans, it's with animals. And that's something that not necessarily every animal lover is going to want to have an opportunity to participate in. So the more I think you get exposure to mentors who've had this kind of experience, I think the, the more um, valuable your assessment of this being the right career path for you. Mm-hmm, um, 
And when, when we think about students that start looking at college options because of an interest in veterinary studies, would you point them in any particular direction or encourage them to look at any particular types of programs uh, that you might not encourage them to look at if they weren't interested um, in becoming a vet later on down the road? Mm-hmm, that's a great question. I say um, I definitely make students aware that there are a few schools that have an accelerated track program, but mm. when I say, you know, I make them aware of that, but that's not necessarily the goal. So, similar to any student who wants an accelerated medical program, that they're A, so highly selective, and B, just so specific, and the student really, really has to know that they want it. So, nice. I, I explore it with them for sure, usually through a few schools, and my experience has been probably 80% of students don't really continue on to the applying to accelerated programs, but when exploring their college choices where we really focus in on the fit, that I'm sure has been <laughs> discussed a zillion times on the show, Definitely. Um, you know, that one piece that I have found is, you know, we'll take into consideration looking through at the school, what kind of clubs and activities, what kind of lab opportunities, and then even are they located near a zoo or any sort of wildlife facility that might be particularly interested for, you know, interesting for a student um, for internships down the road. So yeah, that would be one piece. That's really great. I think, I mean, I think that, that that's one of the really underrated parts of doing any kind of a college search is thinking about how you might have access to certain kind of opportunities around the campus, right? I mm-hmm. mean, if you're looking for uh, a business major, you want to find access to internships in an industry that are that are useful for you. Um, if you're looking to become a doctor after you graduate, you want to have access to healthcare facilities so that you can do internships and job shadowing. Um, and the same mm-hmm. thing is going to be true of, of veterinary studies. And, and you want to sort of look for those, for access to those kinds of things around college campuses that you're looking for. Um, what are maybe some other things that students might think about? I mean, do you encourage for the students who are doing a four-year pursuit, uh, do you encourage them to do an animal sciences major or to look into an animal sciences major? Or is that just as good as a biology or chemistry major for a, for a pre-vet student? Yeah, I mean, from what I have seen generally, it's pretty similar to the pre-health track that um, as long as you're covering the core prerequisite courses to apply to a vet med program, which are primarily sciences, although I've seen some with an occasional business or communication class too, mm-hmm. um, that, you know, that you can sort of be whatever major, although some, it seems, will ask for a bio or chemistry um, background specifically. So you just want to, you know, make sure, number one, that you've got the prerequisite um, course requirements and, you know, uh, usually that there's a pre-health advisor if you're attending a school that, um, you know, doesn't have a vet med program that you could potentially transition into. You just want to make sure that you're at a place that you can cover those requirements. But most majors would allow you to do that. Um, it just would be easier to be a science major typically. Yeah, and, you know, I was poking around as I was doing some research for this uh, this segment today um, on the website for the American Association of Veterinary Medical Colleges, or the AAVMC.org, um, and they've got a great prereq chart right there for all of the members of the AAVMC, and it tells you what courses are going to be required, and what you're going to see at the top is very similar to medical schools, biology, organic chemistry, physics, biochemistry, 
inorganic chemistry, math. And those are things that students are, you know, maybe a part of an animal science program, but fit more closely into a more traditional science program. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing, uh, you know, about animal sciences is that if you're looking only at animal science programs, and I found this when I was actually working with a student a couple of years ago who was very interested in veterinary studies, um, but also interested in animal sciences, um, was that there were very few schools that offer an animal sciences major. Mm the number is 157, and I think if you if you actually filter that down based on other requirements that you might have about your college experience, you might find that there are only five to ten schools that offer animal sciences that fit exactly what you're looking for um, in terms of the experience. So you don't necessarily want to pigeonhole yourself by pursuing a, a thread that isn't exactly connected to the outcome you're looking for, at least not 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 as a prerequisite. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I just really, you know, think students should generally leave their options open and, you know, in the sense of the academic piece, you know, where, like you said, following those prerequisites will allow, you know, maybe a little bit of destiny, but, you know, just generally to fall in love with some topics that they probably never had any exposure to in high school. Right, right. I, I almost think of it like as a, you know, a funneling process where you, you basically are keeping all your options open by exploring different ideas as you go. And, um, you know, you, you narrow down your interests along the way. You don't lose anything by narrowing later yeah. on in the process because you're moving through a funnel. Um, whereas if you narrow early on, you might miss some opportunity to go in a different direction that could potentially be great. Um, now, what what about students building uh, a good application to a veterinary school? Um, you know, is is it going to be somewhat similar to what we would think about in more traditional graduate programs um, or medical school applications? Uh, what should students be thinking about in college as they're developing their their profile for veterinary studies? Yeah, I mean, definitely in addition to the core prerequisite classes. Um, following some lab research, but also um, the, the independent opportunities, whether it's volunteering, uh, you know, in shadowing or volunteering at a lab or a, a wildlife refuge or whatever it may be, that that is, you know, building a resume that will show your experience and then being able to reflect on that um, in the application. So I haven't worked with the graduate application itself, but I do know for some of the accelerated programs, they are going to ask questions that, and in the interview process, would ask questions that are specific to your experiences. Right. And this, I mean, this goes back to that, that early question I asked you, which is, you know, are you doing this because it helps enhance your application or because it's just something that you should do to satisfy your curiosity and experience? And I, I think in this case, it's, it's, again, it's both, um, I did the student that I'm referring to. I, when I worked with her, she was considering graphic design or veterinary studies, which are like <laughs> two completely different things. Um, and she had done this summer art course, and she's like, "I love it. I think it's great. I love graphic design, but I also have always loved animals, and I got to see if this is for me." So she spent her winter break um, shadowing a horse veterinarian for two weeks, um, full days for two weeks, and she was like. It was amazing. Uh, I just was so taken by the work and the opportunity to do really interesting things. Um, and she like was totally exposed to this opportunity and that solidified for her. This is mm-hmm. what I want to do. Um, mm-hmm. and it was 
it was pretty cool. And it, it also helped her application for an animal sciences program as well. Um, but like it was, it was useful for her in answering this question of which direction do I go? Absolutely. I love that. And I had a, a similar uh, experience with a student. And one of the things that I learned in reading up on, you know, what you encourage is that in today's world, we have a lot of vets <laughs> in our world, you know, who right. work with more domestic animals that if you, you know, want to get into veterinary science and you're going to pay to go to school for eight years, you know, be prepared the fact that we need larger animal um, veterinarians out there. So, right. you know, be prepared for the fact that it might be more cows and sheep and <laughs> you know, farm animals. And it's great to get experience across a wide range uh, so that you can uh, be prepared. to. And, and it adds to your application, like you said, Right. Stretch your understanding, see what you might feel comfortable with, try and understand, you know, the whole sense of what a particular area of study is going to look like and what those pre-professional outcomes might be. Um, Great, Kara. Wonderful to have you back. Uh, I look forward to seeing you and the whole team next week in New York. Great. Thanks so much, Ian. Take care. All right. Great. When we come back, we're going to spend some time answering your questions. So stick around. We'll be right back. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. You count. Tune into Interrevolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. Follow the movement. Meet guests who are shaking things up. Call in and gain insights and courage to empower your own voice. Large or small, your part counts. So join us. Co-hosted by Beth Green and James Maynard, Interrevolutionary Radio airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the show. 
Joining me to work our way through your questions is my colleague from the finance end of the hall, Kathy Ruby. Kathy, I've had you on so many times, um, I don't even know if I need to give details about your background. (laughs) Everybody should have it memorized by now. I'm famous. What can I say? <laughs> yeah, you, nice you to know be here. finance. End of story, right? <laughs> um, so I thought we'd try and get through as many questions as we can this afternoon. Um, Great. Do you want to start off uh, with a question or, or should I give you one? Yes. Yeah, so I'm asking you questions and you're asking me questions, right? That's okay. right. That's right. No, well, not our own questions. These are questions that come from our listeners. I want to stipulate. But, uh, but yes, they will be related to admissions and financial aid and, and we'll see how we can help as we go. All right. Well, I've got a few questions that are actually, we've grouped them together a little bit so that they're similar kinds of topics. But so uh, we have two questions about SATs and ACTs. And essentially the questions are um, when to start preparing for the SATs. And then Angela is asking, when do you actually take the SATs and the ACT? Great. Good, good, good questions, I think, to ask right now. And this is something that juniors are really starting to think about um, in earnest, um, because now is really the time that that testing starts to happen for most students. Um, I'll start with Angela's question first. When should I take the SAT or ACT? Uh, The first answer to that is that you have to take them on prescribed test dates. So there's not a lot of flexibility to say, well, I'm going to take the SAT this Saturday, or I'm going to put this in schedule in some way or another. You've got to take them on dates that they're going to be offered by the college board in the case of the SAT or by the ACT organization in the case of the ACT. And you can go to their websites at collegeboard.org or act.org to see what the test dates are for this calendar year. Um, In terms of when to take them in your process, I usually don't answer that concretely for students, but I use a um, tracing backward method. So I want most students to be done with their testing by the end of their junior year, June of their junior year. And usually students like to take the exam two or three times before they feel comfortable with their score, satisfied that they've gotten the highest score that they can get. So if the last time you can take the test is in June and you want to take two or three times, what you should do is look at the test dates and trace back from there two or three dates that are going to work for you that give you the appropriate amount of time to be able to prepare. And that gives us back to our first question, which is when do you start preparing for the SAT? This is sort of different for all students. Um, I think some students... You know, they usually like to start preparing um, in the summer before junior year because they don't want it to compete with their classes. But that can occasionally be a problem if you're not actually taking the test into the spring because you've done a bunch of studying and then you're putting mm-hmm. off the actual test for three months, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I occasionally would tell students, uh, you know, get started with um, a, a test prep company or organization that you think might be able to help you and see what their advice is based on your starting point. Um, if you feel like you're going to go test prep on your own, then I would recommend getting a practice test and doing it at home, seeing how you score. And then figuring out what you need to do between then and your first test date to get prepared. Um, How Mm -hmm. much curriculum knowledge do you need to enhance and what's it going to take? Build a schedule for yourself. Um, So, you know, I I think that now is probably the answer in terms of when to start preparing if you're a junior. (laughs) Um, I think if you're a sophomore, I would say do not even start thinking about these tests until this summer at the the very earliest that you don't get any points for doing these things early. Um, right. And, and for most students, you want to be done by, by the summer. Um, that's a great, a great question and an important one, I think for, for students to know about. 
Well, and here's here's a follow-up, too. Does it make sense to take it and then do some preparation, too? Do you get feedback from the tests about what you're, where you might need help? Sometimes. Some, it depends on how good your practice test is, though. I mean, like, if you're taking the test officially, you might mm-hmm. get just as good information as you get back from a really well-administered practice test, right? If you can be honest with yourself with the egg timer and not get up too much mm-hmm. and focus, <laughs> then you're probably getting the same amount of info that you get from a real test. And right. the difference is that a college... No college will require you to submit the results of the practice test you took at your house, whereas there are some <laughs> colleges out there that require you to submit the results of all All tests. of your tests, yeah. Yeah. So at College Coach, we, we like to advise students to treat every test as though the results count. Um, that's not the case for most schools. Usually they'll super score or they'll take your highest score, but there are schools out there that might require you to submit all scores and you don't want this major outlier um, mm-hmm. that you got just because you're like, well, I'm going to show up and see how I do uh, for the January <laughs> SAT. That might not go over quite so well. Yes, it might not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, that's, a, that's a great, great follow up. Um, all right, I've got a I've got a question for you. Um, and I feel like this is a, a good one for this point in time. This is from Brad, who says uh, he just realized that the 2017-2018 FAFSA has been available since October 1st, uh, which I think is new this year, right? Yes, yes, that's okay. a new thing. So he says he's just filling it out now. Obviously, it's past January, um, or we're in the middle of January. Um, he wants to know if he's missed any important deadlines by not starting earlier. All right. Well, that's, that is a great question for this year. So, so in the past, um, for the last 30 years, the FAFSA um, for the next year has not been available until January 1st. And so if you had a senior in high school, you couldn't fill out the FAFSA until after January 1st um, of their senior year. Uh, And so this year, for the first time, the government made the form available three months earlier. So it's now available October 1st, um, and they're looking at... uh, calendar year of income from two years ago. So they've, they've really uh, changed the process. Um, and so most, you know, a lot of people filled it out in October, but obviously Brad did not. Um, but right. that's actually probably okay. I don't think he missed many important, if any, important deadlines. What we've noticed is that most colleges, um, all the colleges actually that I've seen, did not really change their their institutional deadlines for when they wanted you to complete the FAFSA. So oh, nice. colleges traditionally will ask you to do the FAFSA in the late January, February, early March timeframe. And most colleges, if they've moved their deadlines back at all, they moved them back a month or so. But I haven't okay. seen any college deadlines that were prior to January 1st. So um, college deadlines can vary, but I don't think he's missed any college deadlines. Um, the only danger is there are some states where um, they award aid on a first-come, first-serve basis. But Mm. again, most states didn't change their priority deadlines either. Um, In fact, the federal government encouraged them not to because they didn't want to cut off. I mean, the whole intent of doing this earlier is to make it easier to apply for aid, and they don't want to cut kids out of it. So um, you probably haven't, 99% sure you haven't missed any important deadlines. So just get it done as soon as you can and, and be done with it. When I was working in admission, we I worked at a school that required both the FAFSA and the CSS profile, mm-hmm. um, and they were due at the same time. Um, our our it, when a school has a financial aid deadline, 
are they always going to be at the exact same time or they have different deadlines for different forms ever? Um, some schools will have them be the same date just for simplicity, but then sure. like the school where I worked, we had an earlier deadline for the profile uh, form because that's what we used to award institutional dollars and we could do an estimate of federal dollars from that information. And then we had a slightly later deadline for the FAFSA. Um, gotcha. but, Although that was because the FAFSA, I mean, it was easier if people could fill it out later because then they could pull their data from the IRS. But now, nowadays, um, it's simpler. So um, sometimes schools will have different deadlines if they require both the FAFSA and the profile. But um, sometimes they'll just use the same one to keep it, keep it easy for people. And most gotcha. of the time, college deadlines are priority deadlines, which means as long as you apply by this date, you're going to get fully considered. Um, so it's not a first come, first serve kind of thing. Good, good. All right, it's my turn. <laughs> I was waiting for another question, but it's my turn to ask you one. <laughs> yeah, we're just a back and forth thing. We're sort of like tennis here. We're trying to get a good volley, good rally. Game. Yes. All right. Well, all right. So Jennifer is asking, I have a child who decided to defer her start to take a gap year. So she's thinking of applying to a few schools that are reapplying to a few schools that she didn't get into the first time around. Is there any strategy to think about when reapplying to schools as a gap year applicant? Yeah. Um, well, it's, yeah, it's, it's a good question and a good one for right now, I think, because students are starting to get back their ED or EA decisions and, and they may not be going the way that they want. And I, I think the first thing that students think about is, all right, what can I do to try and get, get into this school maybe next year? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, take I think a gap the f- year. Yeah, the, the first thing, I mean, in terms of a gap year, you, usually what you're doing there is you're deferring your admission for a college and you're telling them that you're going to come the following year. Um, and one of the stipulations of that deferral is that you're not able to enroll as a um, full-time student anywhere else. You're usually mm-hmm. not able to enroll as a part-time student anywhere else. You could be like a visiting student and take, you know, audit a course or something along those lines. But you really can't do anything for college credit because the school where you've gotten in, where you've deferred to take your gap year is holding that space for you. And they're expecting mm-hmm. you to come in as a freshman and they don't want you coming in with new credit and, and they sort of feel like they you're one of theirs, so to speak. Now, right. that doesn't mean that students don't use the gap year to reapply to a school and, and there are cases where students do. I think it's more challenging though than students think. And the reason is when you're in your gap year, you really need to be doing something that significantly improves your application. Right. If you applied the year before from high school where you had all the support of the counselor and the teachers and you've you've taken your classes, you've taken your tests, you've written your essays, all of those things. Um, if you haven't gotten in, it's very hard for you to get in the next year unless something significant changes. Um, obviously, the thing that changes can't be your coursework because you can't mm-hmm. enroll in a new school. So if coursework was the short the shortfall of your application, uh, if it was your grades or the rigor of your curriculum, the way to make that up is probably by enrolling at a different school and then applying as a transfer 
after a year mm-hmm. or two. Um, if the shortcoming maybe was something along the lines of your extracurricular engagement or your maturity uh, or something else that you could improve over the course of a gap year, then it might be worthwhile to find some sort of opportunity where you could really be committed to that engagement. But mm-hmm. as we were talking about with Kara in the previous segment um, about veterinary studies, I think what really is important here is that students are choosing some sort of activity for their gap year that they really stand to benefit from uh, Mm -hmm. personally, Um, that it's something that's going to be worthwhile, even if they don't get into the schools that they hope to get into, right? So we want to think this as having, think of this as having intrinsic value rather than Mm -hmm. utilitarian value. And that's more likely to be beneficial to the student and probably going to be more beneficial in the reapplication process. Right. Because it'll Um, be real. (laughs) It'll be real. It'll feel authentic. Um, the other thing I would say is that it's important to keep aligned to your teachers and your counselor because it's it's much harder to apply when you're not at school every day um, to mm-hmm. get letters of recommendation, to get your counselor to write a letter for you. Um, so I would say it's important to sort of keep them abreast of this um, scenario and let them know that you may be doing this and you you would like their institutional support. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- those are those are some things I would keep in mind if you're going to reapply. Great. Great. Um, now, you know, one reason that somebody might reapply to schools is because they, they don't necessarily like the financial aid that, that came down or, or it's not going to work out for them. And, and that sort of is an awkward segue to this question that maybe is not related at all, which is from <laughs> uh, Beth. Uh, how do you find full tuition scholarships? It's a great question. I, I wish it's a million I dollar question, this. isn't it? Yeah. Or, you know, $40,000 a year, something like that. <laughs> Although what I do like about this person asking this is they are recognizing, I think, the difference between a full tuition scholarship and then a full scholarship, right? So a full scholarship would be tuition and fees and room and board, and those are pretty rare, actually. Um, I mean, they are possible, but to have every single expense covered is much more rare than actually getting a full tuition scholarship. And tuition, obviously, is just covering the tuition, not room and board. Um, so there's no <laughs> there's no magic way to find full tuition scholarships. There's not a list of them out there that I can point you to. Um, but the most important thing when you're trying to maximize your students' chances of getting a full tuition scholarship, it's all about the list of schools that the student applies to. And we, we say that over and over and over again at College yep. Coach. But it's really about first identifying the institutions that might possibly provide full tuition scholarships. And you can do that by researching college websites. Um, and actually, let me just, I, want, I do want to distinguish as I answer this. There are colleges that may not offer merit-based scholarships, that meaning they don't offer any academic merit scholarships to entice students to enroll, but they might offer a grant or scholarship that's large enough to cover full tuition if you're needy enough, if you have enough yeah. financial need. So remember, you can get a full tuition scholarship if you have financial need. There's, there's that piece. So understanding yeah. your financial need is important there. Um, but then for merit-based scholarships, for if, you're, if you're a family that you know you don't have financial need or you don't have much financial need and you want your student to get a full tuition scholarship, then it's really about um, having your student apply to colleges that really want, that really want them. <laughs> so colleges that, uh, where your student is in the top quartile and 
preferably actually in the top five to ten percent of students admitted at that school, um, because those that means your student is a real rock star at that institution, and they're going to be willing to give your student money to entice them to enroll, um, and that's really what it takes to get a full tuition scholarship. You have to be at the top of whatever pool it is that you're in. Um, right. You have to be at the top of the competitive pool. So it's less about going out and finding that full scholarship for the school you want to go to and more about choosing the schools that are more likely to offer you the full yes. tuition scholarship. Yes, and of course, you want to find a school that fits and that you're going sure. to have a great experience at. And and honestly, if you're at a school where they're giving you a full tuition scholarship, lots of times that comes with things like research opportunities and you know summer internships and all kinds of other things, So or an honors college experience, yeah. whatever it might be. So, um, you know, there's... There's a, there's a good reason to go look for those kinds of schools because you're going to have a really enriching and full experience there. Yeah, agreed. All right, Kathy, I think we ought to let that uh, one sink in, so we'll take a break. And then when we come All back right. after a brief, method, brief message, we'll answer even more questions. So you stick around, and I hope our listeners will too. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Are you trying to discover how to thrive in business and follow your purpose? Tune in to Entrepreneur Enlightenment with host Irina Benedict. You will learn how to combine practical business strategies with spirituality so you can grow your business with ease. If you've been searching for purpose, for freedom, for fulfillment, tune in to get your questions answered. Listen live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1 866 472 5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the show. It's the new year, and that means it's time to start thinking about college visits uh, for all you 
Oh, I'm sorry. I've got the wrong. I'm looking at the wrong thing there. Um, <laughs> it's the new year, and we are actually doing a contest um, as a celebration of our 100th episode. And if you want to enter that contest, uh, you can enter at getintocollege.com forward slash 100. That's the digits 100. Um, and we will give you 10 hours free of advice from our finance and admissions experts. So again, go to our website at getintocollege.com forward slash 100. We'll be announcing the winner on the January 26th episode of Get in, Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, and we'd be delighted to have your submission there for that contest. Okay, Kathy, um, that was yeah. a little discombobulated as a transition, but maybe we can <laughs> pick up steam here as we get into the next round of questions. But <laughs> uh, Why don't you ask one? I think it's my turn. Okay, right? it's my turn, right. Okay. Your turn to ask, yeah, great. All right, so we actually got several questions from parents about how competitive their students are given certain GPAs and test scores, um, and especially for highly selective colleges is what they were interested in figuring out is how competitive right. their kids were. So so what do you say to families that ask that yeah, question? Yeah, well, I'm, this is a great plug for uh, our archives um, because Beth Heaton and I uh, had a really nice conversation a couple of weeks ago on um, – can an average student get into a good school? And mm-hmm. the, you know, the rub there is it depends on how you define average. It depends on how you define good. Um, and we talked through a lot of those details um, in terms of how to understand a student's chances of getting into certain colleges um, and, and what you should sort of be looking for. But I think that it comes back to a very similar response to the question, the question that you just got from me, right, which is it depends on the schools that you're looking at and how competitive you are relative to the typical admitted student there. So mm-hmm. if you have a 3.7 GPA and a 1400 SAT, that's a really good set of academic criteria that you can submit to a college. And that's going to make you competitive at 90, 95% of colleges and universities in the country. But if you're only looking at Ivy League schools, that's going to be below average, right? So Mm -hmm. it's all about what the context is in which we're discussing um, a student's achievement. So, you know, I would really... Uh, tell you to go on back, look look at the episode uh, that we had, I think it was on January 5th, um, where we talked about average students and good colleges. That's a great place for you to, to get a little bit of detail uh, on this question. All right, All right. Great. That was an easy one. Um, yeah. Let me, uh, <laughs> let's kick this one back to you. Give me an easy Cole? one now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't know how hard or easy these are. This is your area of expertise. Um, so let's go to a, a younger Student, um, this is a question from Becky. Um, what specific merit-based scholarships are available to apply for before junior or senior year? I have a freshman. Well, I also have two college kids, a freshman and a junior, and I need to locate merit-based scholarships for them as well. So what do you say um, to somebody who's looking for scholarships as a freshman in high school? And perhaps as a part B of that question, what do you say to students who are already in college about looking for scholarships? All right. Um, yeah. So this this poor, poor Becky has three kids. She's paying for college for. So right, yeah, that's we better rough. provide yeah. some help here. Um, well, so for your your ninth grader, so I'm assuming we're talking ninth grade, and so um, she's so, yeah. trying to find merit based scholarships that are that her student can apply for before junior and senior year. Yeah. And I'm not sure. I mean, there are some scholarships for that kids can apply to before their junior or senior year, but most have deadlines that happen in the junior and senior year. But what what a ninth grader can be doing, and and when we're talking about 
uh, in the context of this question, when we talk about merit-based scholarships, what we're talking about are private outside scholarships. So scholarships from uh, organizations like, you know, foundations and churches and community organizations and corporations, um, not the colleges themselves, because for the colleges, you, you can't apply for scholarships until you're a senior in high school. But for these private scholarships, um, what you can be doing as a ninth grader and, in fact, should be doing as a ninth or tenth grader is researching what's out there. So we, we really encourage students to start looking early in high school because a ninth or tenth grader may identify a potential scholarship where they still have time to actually do something to meet the criteria versus if you wait until your senior year to do all your searching you've kind of done everything you're going to do and you're just trying to fit yourself into the criteria of scholarships that are there. So, um, you know, encourage your ninth grader to be doing searches on uh, using search tools like scholarships.com, uh, fastweb.com. There's an app called Scholly that we've been hearing good things about. Um, Scholly, S-C-H-O-L-L-Y. Um, so it's a big research project. And, and, and in addition to doing the national kinds of research, make sure that your student is looking in their local community. So identifying organizations in your community who give scholarships, whether it's your employer or your church or the local booster club or the local rotary club, whoever it might be. And you can start with your guidance office, but then also as a family, just sit down and think about all the organizations that you interact with on a daily basis and try to figure out if they have scholarships. It's, I, um, I like this because it's it's very similar to what, you know, you don't apply for college until you're a senior, but you mm-hmm. have to do all these things to get ready to apply to college by, right. you know, doing exactly. coursework and getting engaged in your community. And it's, I never had thought about it as you should also do these things to prepare yourself to apply for certain scholarships um, because there might be qualifications that you don't have when you're looking at them as a senior. Uh, right. that's, that's some interesting advice. And that, that is, I mean, that is one of the hardest questions we get from a senior in spring of their senior year. Where can I find scholarships? And, and we can point them in the same directions. It's just that they're, they're limited by what they've done. Um, so, that's, um, so that's for the ninth grader. Those are the things to be thinking about. Now, in terms of the college kids, I guess the, the place to start, so the freshman and junior in college, Start with their school financial aid office. Make sure that they are um, in touch with the financial aid office to find out about how to apply for any scholarships that are offered through the college. Um, find out uh, what kinds of things are available through their academic department. Of course, check out the website of the colleges that they're attending. Um, I would also encourage them to to check out the social media of the uh, financial aid office of the college they're attending because lots of times financial aid offices are trying to communicate with current students through various social media avenues, whether it's Facebook or it's usually Facebook. But um, So um, make sure they're just connected with the financial aid office and the scholarship office at the colleges that they're attending. Um, as well as their academic departments. And then they can be doing the same kinds of um, private scholarship searches that the younger one is doing. Um, But their added focus now is, you know, especially the junior has probably decided on a major and a career track. So really trying to focus that way, Um, try to find professional organizations and um, other kinds of organizations that are giving scholarships for your particular career 
And also remember that sometimes you can get money for doing things that are unpopular. So, um, you know, Carol was talking about, um, you know, veterinarians, right, who there's lots of vets for domestic animals, but not so much for large animals. Right. And, yeah. and that's true when it comes to student loan forgiveness programs for veterinarians. Yes, that can sometimes be the case that if you're willing to go be a large animal vet somewhere in the middle of <laughs> rural wherever, Sometimes states will have loan forgiveness programs for that. So it's the same idea when it comes to scholarships. If you're willing to do something that's not popular um, or that nobody thinks about. We always talk about a scholarship called the Asparagus Club Scholarship, which is for kids going into grocery management. And, you know, who thinks about going into managing grocery stores? Well, (laughs) the grocery managers do. And they're worried there's nobody doing it. So. But for you kids listening, that doesn't mean that your parents are going to pay you to do the dishes. That's unpopular. No, probably not, not, not money at all. For it. You got you to gotta actually do that. Uh, great. That's that's a great answer. I think that's going to really help Becky. All right. All right so let's turn. see. Your next questions have to do with early decision. Oh, okay. So, yeah. So we have a couple of questions that are similar. Um, and then, so I think we're going to go with two different questions here, but um, so okay. first, Armin is asking, does applying through early admission or early decision programs increase one's chances of admission? And then Melissa is asking, how does my senior best utilize the early enrollment option? Use it for the dream school, the hard to get in but possible school, or not at all? So those are kind of related, those two questions, I think. Yeah, yeah. And we've talked, I think, in the past about early action and early decision. And, and early, actually, Armin asked about early admission and in in the industry that the terminology for early admission usually means that you're graduating high school early so you're asking to be admitted early in terms of your timeline which means I've got ah. just three years worth of high school coursework and I'd like to apply so when we talk about early uh, early admissions policies we're talking about early action or early decision okay. um, applying early action doesn't really increase your chances of getting into a given school it's basically just an earlier timeline and the reason it doesn't increase your chances is because it's non-binding so the school knows that if they admit you they don't necessarily guarantee that you're going to enroll. And really, it's just an opportunity on their part to think, well, we can maybe get this kid excited about us before he gets excited about anywhere else. And that's, mm-hmm. I think, a little bit of what the incentive is for early action on the side of colleges. Um, early decision increases a student's chances a little bit. Now, it's not going to take a student who is totally underqualified and make them an admit. But for students that might be marginal, that opportunity for a school to lock up a given student in the ED round through that binding process might make the difference between getting in or not getting in. Um, mm-hmm. And sometimes it, it really demonstrates to a college that you're serious about them, that you're really interested. So, you know, I remember when I worked at Reed, which is a place that, you know, we were admitting about a third of applicants um, and our yield was not as high as some of the the really highly ranked liberal arts colleges out there. Um, we would have students that would apply ED that would get in that probably wouldn't have been successful in the regular round. And then we had students applying regular who we said, oh man, if only this kid had applied ED um, because mm-hmm. they were really marginal, but they just weren't as competitive in the regular round once we saw the whole pool. 
Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's, you know, there's a definite increase in your chances for ED for certain schools. Um, I think that that, in, that increase in chances is not very significant at Ivy's. I think that there is a significance at, at some schools like Duke or Northwestern, which actually admit about half their class in the early round. And then you're going to find at a lot of smaller liberal arts colleges, especially the ones that are not quite as highly ranked, that ED mm-hmm. is a really big part of their process because they need to lock up their enrollment numbers early on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, you know, what Melissa asks uh, about, you know, whether and how to use the early option, whether to use it for a dream school or the possible school or not at all. I think, you know, the, all, the thing I always come back to is this has to be your first choice. If you want to do early decision, this school has to be the place that you would go, even if you got in anywhere else, because there's really no backing out of an early decision agreement. Mm -hmm. You're telling that school you're going to go. Um, And so we have to first answer that question. Is this your top choice? If the answer there is yes, well, then what I want to look at is what your likelihood of admission is going to be. And let's say you're a 3-6 applicant with a 1300 SAT. Probably applying ED to Penn isn't going to make much of a difference. But mm-hmm. applying ED to read might make a really big difference in whether you get in there or not. And if mm-hmm. read is your clear second choice, and I don't think that there's really a chance you're going to get into Penn with, with your numbers, then I might say, well, you know, I know that reads your second choice and you'd really like to go to Penn, but I don't think that that's going to happen even if you apply ED. So maybe we should use your ED on your clear second choice because mm-hmm. I think it can make a difference between getting in or not. So I think it's the one that you want to go for at the margin. It's sort of like a reach minus, a place that's a reach, but not a super far reach. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I actually want to ask you a question, Kathy, about early decision, because I've seen this come through before. Um mm-hmm. How does the sort of financial aid work into this process? Because I think a lot of parents and students, they're kind of counting on financial aid or they're hoping they might get a recruitment scholarship. But it seems to me that colleges don't necessarily have an incentive to provide a recruitment scholarship through ED if they know that a student's going to enroll. Right. And, and, and so that can be the case. So when it, from a financial perspective, what we tell families about early decision is, you know, before, if, if you care how much you're going to pay, so in other words, if it's not a blank check for you, um, you want to make sure that you have a really good sense of what things are going to, what will likely look like. Um, and you want to make sure that you're willing to pay um, and able to pay um, even the full price of an institution if if the calculators are telling you that you might not get anything. So um, we encourage families to use college net price calculators before they decide about applying early decision. So if you're a family that has need, you want to have a sense of how much need-based aid is the college going to give. And then when it comes to merit-based scholarships, it... Um, Many colleges do treat early decision students the same as they would treat anyone else. Um, Not all colleges will say, no, we're not giving you a scholarship because we know you're coming. Um, So some colleges will give you a merit scholarship, scholarship, but other colleges may say, no, you know, no, you didn't get anything. And part of that reason could be because you applied early decision. So it's okay to ask a college up front. Um, Go right ahead and ask. Will I be fully considered for merit-based scholarships if I apply through early decision? Um, and most colleges will give you an honest answer on that. Great. Well, that's terrific. I think we're basically out of time. Um, oh, wow. We had, yeah, I know. It goes really fast, doesn't it? Um, thanks for being on, Kathy, and for asking yeah. and answering questions. It's a lot of fun. Look forward to seeing you next week. Yes. See you soon. Awesome.
Definitely. That's all the time we have today, folks. Uh, we, we got to as many as we could, but I know you'll be submitting more questions in the future, and we really look forward to having the opportunity to respond to those. And we use them as, as ideas for segments on future shows. So please keep the questions coming, gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Our show next week will topic, tackle the topic of transferring from a two-year community college to a four-year college or university. We'll also be looking at scholarship opportunities for the late starter with deadlines in February or March. And my colleague, Sally Ganga, who will be back in the hosting chair next week, will be bringing some top shelf advice to our listeners in an office hour segment of her very own making. So don't miss it. If you're on the West Coast, stay warm, stay dry. If you're out East, enjoy your tank top and shorts weather while it lasts. See you back here next week. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 